This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, who's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Greg Walker, number 764, first baseman for the Chicago White Sox. Fantastic. As one bit of a quick follow-up, David, I had here in the queue something that came across my Twitter feed. Our recent discussion of the 1988 uh, World Series was on my mind. Yeah, I think that was on the Tommy Lasorda episode. And this week, Vin Scully, a famous and legendary broadcaster for the Dodgers, who started tweeting, I believe, at the age of 92, tweeted out a long anecdote about his experience with Kirk Gibson. So I, I don't want to spoil it. I really am just going to put a link in the show notes. I encourage all listeners. I'm, I assume that all listeners of this podcast follow Vince Scully on Twitter. But if you don't, uh, then you should follow. And we'll have a link to this particular tweet, this story. I found it very heartwarming. And in 2020, we could all use a little dose of that. Thanks for bringing that up, Matt. I'm, on the Tommy Lasorda episode, we talked about that specific at bat, that Kirk Gibson at bat versus Dennis Eckersley in the bottom of the ninth inning of game one of the 1988 World Series. Watching the video of that, that's like a 10-minute at-bat. And Vin adds a little bit more color to where Kirk came from in the lead-up to that at-bat. Yeah, I think both you and I afterwards then went back and watched that ninth inning of the game one, and it's an amazing, amazing inning. I No, I'm an optimist at heart. I believe our best days are yet to come, but damn those days in 1988 were pretty great so anyway so thank you for uh humoring with me with that david but let's let's go now to greg walker uh why do we pick greg walker this week matt we haven't talked about a white Sox player yet on the podcast in the 1988 set it was recently greg walker's birthday and we celebrate all of the birthdays it was his 61st birthday on the 6th of october when i was Looking into the guys who celebrated birthdays, I'd normally look at their career stats, where their career took them after 1988. And with Greg Walker, his career ended rather abruptly shortly thereafter. I owned a Greg Walker starting lineup figure in 1988, the first year of those figures. It seemed like Greg Walker was a star or primed to be a really solid first baseman for a long time for the Chicago White Sox. When I was looking at at his career stats, I just wondered what happened to his playing career, and it led me to an interesting news article from right around 1988 that uh, we'll get into later. Well, let's go to the card then, and here on the front of 764, we've got the White Sox, the name of the team in green, I feel like really pops, and and Greg Walker's banner name on on the lower right corner in pink which I think is on a field of pink, which I think uh, really stands out. And then Greg is in a, in a really great stance. It looks like he's just hit a home run and he is watching it. He is watching the catcher is behind him. You can see also looking far in the distance. Uh, So this looks like, and he's, and he's thinking hard about uh, the ball. The other side of that might be that he's thinking, do I need to run this one out? Or is that a very high pop fly? I can just jog. Do I just need to jog? Am I running? Am I jogging? 
Matt, something else I noticed about this. One, those colors, that green and pink, not traditional White Sox colors. In this era, they were wearing a the blue script, blue hats with a script C and a red brim. I need to say off the bat, this is one of my least favorite White Sox uniforms. I prefer the current iteration of White Sox uniforms as well as the one right before this with the block lettered socks in red, white, and blue. So it's not my favorite, but Greg's got a good look on this card. This pose that he's doing is also a very starting lineups pose. Mm. So Matt, I'm not sure if you were of the age that starting lineups figurines were a thing in your life. Not really. I wasn't really one to collect figurines. I would have feared that my little brother would have broken them, eaten them. Yeah, that's a thing that happened. Yeah, I think I think that that, I think that happened with some of my cards too. My little brother may have eaten some of them. He was three at this time, so that's right around (laughs) chewing on things that you're not supposed to face. Maybe may have chewed on a Jose Canseco. 1988 was the first year that starting lineups figurines were made. And I had a Greg Walker starting lineup. You know, of course, you're going to get all of the luminaries. They had a Charlie Huff starting mm. lineups. You could get a Hackman, Jeffrey Leonard, yes. Eric Davis, and Greg Walker. So we'll put the link in the show notes to the Greg Walker starting lineup. They made 124 different Major League Baseball players in the first year of production. That's kind of a lot of guys. And also considering... They only made two players on Canadian teams. They made George Bell and Tim Raines. There were seven New York Mets. Like, can, huh. I just can't imagine seven guys that you would want a little figurine of from the New York Mets. The Lenny Dykstra one, I imagine, is just covered in spit. <laughs> totally filthy. A filthy figurine. These figurines kind of looked like the guy. The Greg Walker one... He is reaching for a ball to kind of make a backhanded play with a glove. But this look on the card is is one of the poses. The bat right behind, looking forward, watching the ball fly. They weren't really totally movable, but you could move their arms a little bit and kind of turn their head around. So it sounds like three points of articulation, just like arm, arm, and neck. maybe the waist. Yeah, I think you could turn waist, them at okay. the waist. Okay. So they're you know they had catchers, pitchers, a guy with a bat watching a ball fly. Julio Franco was just kind of running with his glove up. <laughs> there was a kind of interesting story behind the creation of these. So they were made by Kenner Toys. Kenner Toys, who famously made a ton of money off of Star Wars toys in the late 70s, early 80s. The idea was from a guy named Pat McInnelly, a Cincinnati Bengals punter and wide receiver, and also the only player to have scored a perfect score on the NFL Wonderlick test, which is the pre-draft test. Like the intelligence test, basically, for football players. Mm-hmm. He came up with this idea when he was in a toy store and noticed that a lot of the things were mythical or made-up heroes, in quotes. And he thought, well, why w- wouldn't there be a Walter Payton toy or uh, a Pat McInnelly toy? You know, everybody wants a punter <laughs> figure. I would love that. I would love a punter, a, a punter doll. <laughs> so he was selling a condo to a guy who worked for Kenner, who I think he may have gone to school with. 
and raised this idea and they kind of went into business. And I think Pat ended up making a ton of money off of this because they sold, I found one number that said $700 million worth of these and Pat was getting a cut of each sale. Yeah, this is this is a classic Harvard Business School story. They also then expanded into, I think that first year they did Major League Baseball, NBA, and NFL. Mm. So I, of course, growing up in Chicago, I had a Neil Anderson and a Richard Dent, of course, a Michael Jordan in that first year. I think I also, mm-hmm. as baseball goes, had Greg Walker and Harold Baines, I think was the other one that I had from the White Sox. They produced these based on where they thought they could sell them and how many they thought they could sell. And I think they were pretty regionally focused. So now you find some of the more valuable of these still in package are Carl Malone and John Stockton were mm-hmm. not overly produced while the Michael Jordan figurine was produced for you know, all over the country. The original run of these went from 1988 until 2001. Somebody owns the rights to starting lineups, and they still make some of these for handouts at uh, stadium giveaways. You can find some of these originals for like 15 bucks. Uh, but that first year, they made 350 different players between Major League Baseball, NBA, and NFL. So 1988, they started big with this. They came out swinging. Yeah, 350 different players is a lot for a first round of any collectible. At a retail of 5 to $10, you could definitely make some pro- hefty profit off of it. Well, that is exciting. So we, we've got Greg Walker in his starting lineups pose here. And now flip back to the back of the card. And Greg, first baseman, 6'3", 210, from Douglas, Georgia. So I did find a pretty good interview with Greg where he talked a little bit about his background growing up in Douglas, Georgia. And he later went on to be a coach for the Atlanta Braves, who were his childhood team. But he grew up with a pretty typical sports background, playing football, basketball, and baseball. He was drafted in the 20th round by the Phillies in 1977. When he was drafted, schools started to take notice that we got something here. Maybe we can get him to come play. You know, the University of Georgia came to him, gave him a call and see if he wanted to come play baseball there. He had injured his arm playing football and thought, if I go to school and keep playing, I might injure myself again. Why not take a chance and just sign and and go for it? He had been a catcher in high school, but was converted to first base in the minors. In that early career, he played A ball with the Phillies. Uh, and in, in 1979, they signed Pete Rose to play first base. So you have a 19-year-old Greg Walker in A ball as maybe the next thing coming through. But they signed one of the greatest players of all time to play first base for a few seasons. So there wasn't a lot of space for him to move up the ranks there. So it looks like, David, that's why in 1979, we go to the This Way to the Clubhouse on the back of the card. Greg was acquired by the White Sox from the Phillies in the minor league draft, and that's December 4th, 1979. And so this is what looks like the Rule 5 draft. Yeah, I had to look into this a little bit because I didn't immediately know what the Rule 5 draft was. This draft was designed before free agency to allow players and teams the opportunity to maybe 
get somebody who would just be stashed in the minors and give them a shot at playing in the big leagues. If you're the Yankees and you have nine guys on the field who are going to be the same nine, nine guys every day, your minor league system is just there to cover for injuries. Mm-hmm. And if nobody gets injured, your guys are just there and there's no free agency when their contract is done. This Rule 5 draft was, kind of gave another team a chance to say, this is a person who's not on your 40-man roster. We will sign him and put him on our 40-man roster. So another team couldn't just sign somebody and stash him in the minors. They had to take up one of their roster spots with the, with the person that they drafted in this Rule 5 draft. And it was designed for minor leaguers who spent multiple years in the minors that were not protected on the 40-man roster. Another team could come in and, and pick that guy. There's also a minor league version of this. So if a player was not on the AAA roster, a team could come in and say, we are drafting you for our AAA team. And that's what happened with Greg. So those rules have kind of changed over time, and teams are required to pay a certain level of compensation depending on where the player is at. And you know, some famous Rule 5 draftees, Roberto Clemente was picked up by the Pirates in this way. Bobby Bonilla was actually drafted by the White Sox in the Rule 5 draft from the Pirates before he was then traded back to the Pirates. I see a note here that somehow Jerry Krause and the Bulls' last dance is somehow connected to Greg Walker. Tell me what this is about. Yes, aside from Greg Walker being a high school basketball player, he was he did in this interview talk about how it was kind of fun in the 90s that people connected with the White Sox because they're also owned by Jerry Reinsdorf, who owned the Bulls, could get tickets to the games in the 80s and 90s, go see those great Jordan teams. Before he went to the Bulls, Jerry Krause, the general manager of the Chicago Bulls in the Jordan years, was a scout for the White Sox. <laughs> and he was a scout for them when they were owned by Bill Veck. Bill Veck, famous for Eddie Goodell and creating the exploding scoreboard. Jerry Krause had scouted Greg Walker when he played for the Phillies. According to Walker, Krause went to the owner and said, what if I could get you a left-handed hitting first baseman for $75,000? Bill Veck said, for a guy who's just out of high school, no way I'm spending that kind of money on, on this guy. And, and so Kraus goes away, comes back and says, okay, what if I can get him for $12,500? And Vec says, sign him up. <laughs> That's the way that Jerry Kraus convinced Bill Vec that they should draft Greg Walker in this Rule 5 draft because that was the compensation that was owed to the minor league team to pick one of their players. So Jerry Krause was responsible for Greg Walker's career with the Chicago White Sox. Well, that leads us to the fun fact, David, that he led the Eastern League with 117 runs scored in 1981. Our favorite, once again, a very strange statistic, which I'm guessing is obscuring a bigger story of minor league success. He had a great year in 1981. He had 321 with 22 home runs and 86 RBIs to go along with those 117 runs scored. So he was consistently moving up uh, the White Sox chain while he had been kind of trapped in A ball in the Philly system. He was moving up steadily in the White Sox system. So then 1982, he finally uh, makes his, finally breaks into the major league roster. How did that happen? 
He started the season in AAA in Edmonton, but he had only played in 35 games because he had broke his arm, but he was hitting 350. So he breaks his arm. He's in rehab back in Georgia, and he gets a call up in September because the White Sox had some injury issues. But when he got called up, he was too injured to even play defense. So he was just (laughs) called up to play to be a pinch hitter or DH. But he had a good run. He uh, hit 412 in 17 at-bats in 11 games. But he said he was still recovering from this broken arm, but got his chance to play in the big leagues. That's amazing. That's uh, to hit a baseball with a broken arm seems pretty hard. He must have made quite an impression because 1983, he makes the the White Sox roster right out of spring training. That was a pretty good year for the White Sox. Yes, and the 1983 White Sox, they won the American League West. They had Lamar Hoyt, who won the Cy Young Award. Harold Baines was on that team. Ron Kittle was the Rookie of the Year. Carlton Fisk. They were managed by Tony La Russa, who in recent news, we'll see if he's back as the new manager of the Chicago White Sox. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. And then uh, also Pirates great Jimmy Leland was the third base coach for that team. Fantastic. Well, and then it looks like, David, he that Greg started off that season uh, with a bang, with a, a very memorable, <laughs> very yes. memorable opening day. Yes, he started off the season with two errors in the first inning of opening day. <laughs> he ended up playing in 118 games, but he only played 59 of them at first base. He was platooned with Tom Pachorek and... A lot of times he would get pulled in late innings to put in Mike Squires, who was a defensive replacement, just to to close out games. But yeah, he hit 270, 10 home runs, 55 RBIs in that rookie season. Pretty solid. Yeah, the team ends up getting 99 wins, makes the playoffs, and although they lost the ALCS to the Orioles, looking at 1984... White Sox, it's not a playoff year for them. They go 74 and 88, but a pretty good year for Greg. Yeah, he hit 294, 24 homers, 75 RBIs, and he was 10th in the American League in slugging percentage. So really turned on the power that year. Then 1985 comes, and here, as alluded to, is his league leading 163 games played in the regular season. I was told there would be no math. But David, <laughs> Matt, and I, I think add in up... the last episode you were doing some advanced math applications. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But this, this is, I feel like we're getting into some sort of quantum physics where 162 game season that someone plays 163 games. So how is this possible? I didn't think that I would ever say this, but I have to thank Yahoo Answers for the answer to this question. <laughs> Yahoo answer is, man, we need to play the My Brother, My Brother and Me theme song. We will not steal their bit. But (laughs) someone asked Yahoo Answers, how did Greg Walker play 163 games for the 1985 White Sox? So the White Sox in 1985 played 162 games and went 85 and 77. Greg Walker only played for the White Sox in that season. How did he play more games than the team played? One of the best parts of Yahoo Answers is the very stupid answers that people give, (laughs) including Grizzly Grizz, who said, there is only one way for anyone to do that 
while playing for only one team, and that is to play every game for a team that finishes the regular season in a tie, thus forcing a one-game playoff. So thanks, Grizzly Grizz, for saying there's only one way to do this. Incorrect! Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So the record for games played in a season is Maury Wills played 165 games in the 1962 season because there was a tie between the Dodgers and the Giants forcing a three-game playoff. Now they do a one-game playoff, so you might have a guy get 163 games because of that one-game playoff. However, that's not the only way. The White Sox finished third. They were not in a tiebreaker. In 1985, what ended up happening was there was a rainout, but the game went to the seventh inning. Normally, if that happens and one team is in the lead, that team is declared the winner. This game was tied one-to-one, so the players all get credited with playing a game, but it didn't show up in the standings as a completed game because there's no Mm. ties. So they replayed the game. I don't know why they didn't just continue that game from the seventh inning on, but Greg Walker was credited with 163 games because of that July 31st rainout. That is really dumb, but (laughs) it's great. (laughs) The reason why I, I made such a big deal of it at the beginning is that it has the italics, but here to see someone as a league leader in games played and have that number be more than 162 is just, it's kind of shocking. <laughs> it's, it's unnatural. It's unnatural. It is unnatural. So looking at the stats, the other stats, 258, so his average is a little bit less, but 155 hits out of 600 at-bats. So just showing as an everyday player. His 1985 season, he had the most at-bats of his career, also the most games of his career. His average was a little bit down, but still hitting for power, driving in some more runs, 92 runs driven in that year. And 24 home runs again, so back-to-back with 20-plus home run seasons. Very good. 1986, it looks like some injuries kind of limit his playing time. He only plays in 78 games after he heals up. 1987 looks like a pretty good year for him. It was his career best with 27 home runs, 94 RBIs, and a 256 average. But David, this was his last year as a regular player. This is the last time that he would, you know, make it through a full season. Why don't you tell us about what happened to him in July of 1988? You know, around the time that we would have been collecting this 1988 Tops card, you have Walker coming off a season, 27 home runs in 1987, looking like he's going to be at that point. He's 28 years old, maybe have five or six more years of being a solid 20-plus home run guy. In 1988, his uh, Greg's power numbers were a little bit down. He was only hitting uh, 247 as of July, as July is coming to a close, and he only had eight home runs at that point. Which brings us to July 30th, 1988. Greg shows up to Comiskey Park, and he's feeling a little bit tired. He said that he kind of laid on the trainer's table, And the night before, he had made an error, so he wanted to go out and get a little bit of fielding practice. So he goes out to take a few grounders, and as he's doing so, his leg buckles, and he just kind of froze. He said that he thought he was having a heart attack, and then he fell to the ground and started convulsing, and he couldn't speak or breathe. His teammates came over to try to help, but they were also scared of what was happening. His jaw was clenched. 
Some of his teammates ran to the dugout to call an ambulance. Players were screaming for the trainer, Herm Schneider, to come out. And some of them left the field because they thought that he was going to die. Greg was grabbing at his neck because he couldn't breathe. And one of his teammates was trying to help him and was shoved away. And Greg shoved him away in his convulsion. He was having a seizure. So Herm Schneider, who's the Sox trainer, longtime White Sox trainer, comes running out. When he got to him, he said that Walker was turning blue, his lips were purple, and his eyes had rolled back into his head. And so Schneider thought that he couldn't breathe, so he's trying to use scissors, anything to pry Walker's mouth open. He chipped one of his teeth in the process, and Walker bit one of Schneider's fingers so hard that it bled. And so in reading this Sports Illustrated article about the incident, as I got to this part, I'm thinking, that's not... That's not right. You're, you probably shouldn't do that if someone is suffering from a seizure. I'm not a medical expert, but I was glad to read further in that article that, in fact, the Epilepsy Foundation suggests not to do this and not to do what Schneider did, and Schneider received some uh, negative criticism for his actions. Walker credits Herm with trying to save his life and said nobody really knew what was happening Greg Walker had never suffered a seizure before. Most of the guys on the field had never seen anything like this. So Walker was conscious by the time he left the field on a stretcher. So he regained consciousness, went to the hospital, and suffered a second seizure the next morning and another a few days later. Afterwards, he ended up having an allergic reaction to some of the drugs that were given to prevent seizures. But he was really concerned, and I think it seemed... Later, the most concerning aspect of this is that they weren't sure what happened. They, it may have been a virus. There wasn't any tumor. I haven't found anything where he says that he knows exactly what happened uh, to cause that. Wow. That's freaky. But interestingly, by spring of the next year, he was back. and Whoa. <laughs> back on the field and, and hitting relatively well. In spring training, he hit over 300 and started the season in 1989, starting at first base and was hitting pretty well to begin the season. However, uh, his form trailed off and he ended up hitting 210 with only five home runs and ended up released in 1990 and signed with the Orioles, but only played in 14 games. When asked about how his career ended, he just said that he was beat up physically and he didn't know if he thought about that incident on the field too much, but he said he felt like he never really got his edge back or mm. the ability to focus and concentrate that he had earlier in his, that he had mm. earlier in his career. It's really unfortunate. That's it's such a strange physical ailment to pick up and make such a big difference in the career. And it's really a shame. And when I was looking into this, Particularly because you have a guy here in 1987 who hits 27 home runs, driving in almost 100 runs. He's got a starting lineup, so he must be a star. And yet, maybe this is a sign of a different time that I didn't ever know what happened to Greg Walker. He, mm. I didn't read this article about this seizure. Maybe if I had been a little bit older, I would have read going into the 1989 season Walker's coming back from injury or Walker's coming back from illness. Today, if somebody isn't in the lineup, you can look and figure out, oh, I wonder what happened to 
Jose Abreu. I wonder what happened to name your player who is out for a game. And you could do that from your phone. <laughs> or you, <Right>. and anyway. <laughs> and in 1988, you couldn't really do that. And so guys just kind of trailed off and they were no longer around. So in looking back, I was a little bit interested in seeing his stats and going from, it, it just looked like, well, he must have had some injuries and then retired. Yeah, yeah. it turns out he had a completely unexplained crazy seizure and like, on the field and on the field that's that's just that is wild that must be uh must have been terrifying so 1990 he is released and so tell us about his retirement so it seems like jerry reinsdorf really took care of greg walker in that illness and later after about 10 years of being in Douglas, Georgia, and taking some time for retirement, Reinsdorf convinced Walker to come back and become a coach with the Chicago White Sox organization. He ends up becoming the hitting coach in 2003, and the White Sox then won a World Series in 2005. So Greg Walker, this is another reason why he's one of my favorites. <laughs> uh, if I still had that starting lineup at my parents' house, I would find it and put it somewhat uh... prominent in my home. You know, th those White Sox teams in the early to mid 2000s had seven consecutive seasons where they hit 200 plus home runs which tied mm. a record for uh, team home runs he was well liked by some of the players particularly paul canerco another first baseman power hitter canerco credited greg walker with a lot of his hitting success it all kind of went downhill after 2005 they made a playoff appearance in 2008 but i think the arrival of adam dunn with the Chicago White Sox led to Greg Walker leaving the White Sox. Adam Dunn had a historically bad season in which he hit 159. Uh, <laughs> just really, really bad. Yet somehow Adam Dunn's season was not as bad as Jerry Royster's 1977. <laughs> <laughs> but Greg Walker took a lot of the brunt of criticism for hitting ailments of the Chicago White Sox. His resignation came right around the time that other White Sox legend Ozzie Guillen was released as manager. From there, it looks like he goes to the Braves for a, a few years as a hitting coach as well. That was a return home for Greg back to Georgia, and he held that job from 2012 until the end of the 2014 season. The Braves had a pretty disappointing season in 2014, and uh, Greg stepped down. He's been a special assistant and is still involved with the Atlanta Braves since 2015. So as we as we close the book on on Greg Walker, you know, 260 with a 326 on-base percentage, 746 746 hits, 113 home runs and 444 RBIs. With Greg Walker, I listened to this podcast interview that he did in Georgia. And I listened to it because I wanted to try to figure out what happened on the field that day and was hoping maybe he would go into it. And But what it did, it really, this interview really did personalize Greg Walker for me. He talked about being friends with all of these guys from the 83 White Sox and how they come down and they go hunting in Georgia or that he went to Cooperstown and the White Sox took him to Cooperstown for Harold Baines' induction into the Hall of Fame and how his kids are friends with Harold Baines' kids and all of this. This really, there's that kind of personalization. But then there's the 
the other piece of it where you say, oh, this is a human who is going through something incredibly difficult. And the other humanization of those guys on the field, that Ozzie Guillen was on the field and came over and saw his teammate, he thought he saw his teammate dying. And Ozzie Guillen is this over-the-top, boisterous guy. And to think about those guys as humans on the field with their friend is something that I thought was interesting in the story. That is great. Excellent, David. Thank you. So for the folks at home, if you've got something valuable stashed at your parents' house, or if there's something valuable that your parents threw away, if you've ever had someone bite your finger, we'd love to hear about it. You can reach us at Tops1988 on Twitter. That's where you'll find us. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.